The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I'd invite you to follow along as we continue in the book of James. It's just been a delight, privilege, and a wonderful blessing really to be going through the book of James. Incredibly practical book. Easy to understand and at the same time very challenging as we've talked about in such a short epistle. James packs in about 60 imperatives, so every chapter is just loaded with these strong exhortations to every Christian of things we need to be doing. Uh, walking the talk, right? It's, a, it's an epistle of doing for the Christian. And that's one of the unique characteristics about James. And uh, we've been able to go through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now we're picking up in chapter 3. Uh, so let's go ahead and look there in James chapter 3. Just by way of reminder, James was one of the leaders and pastors of the early church in Jerusalem. And then there was uh, many of those believing uh, Jews who became Christians uh, dispersed out of that area of Jerusalem and are now spread out all over the place. It's been maybe almost 15 years now since Christ rose and ascended. So a lot of these Jewish believers have settled in other places and maybe been a part of new churches or uh, assemblies of worship. And James is keeping tab on how all the saints are doing in the church abroad. And he got a lot of feedback maybe even visited some of these churches. And one of the byproducts of that is this pastoral letter or epistle. He wants to write to all these believing uh, Jews, many of whom were in his fold at one time. Some people complain about the book of James because they say it lacks thematic unity. It's not real smooth in terms of its development from chapter to chapter like the Apostle Paul did in Galatians or more specifically in Romans where Romans 1 through 3, it's one smooth theme being developed, even carrying on actually to chapter 4. Really, 1 through uh, chapter 8 is one thematic development theologically by the Apostle Paul. So you can kind of track where he's going and climactic arguments, and people look at James and say, wow, chapter 3 seems totally disjointed. has nothing to do with chapter 2, and then chapter 4 is totally different, chapter 5, and then the end. What's up with that? Where's all the thematic unity? And actually... uh, What it comes down to is James is writing as a pastor who wanted to deal with practical concerns that he heard about in churches abroad. And so it's more on a personal and specific level that he's writing. And he narrowed it down. There's a few issues that are dominant themes that keep creeping up as trials in these local churches with these believers, and that needs to be addressed. And so he itemizes maybe four or five of those, and they don't necessarily relate to one another. They're just specific things he's writing that... Hey, I heard about this. We need to address this. So in chapter 1, I heard about the trials you were having with life, uh, both in temptations and suffering, and here's how you need to deal with it. You need to trust God. And in chapter 2, hey, I've heard that uh, you know, you've been believers 15 plus years, and yet I understand there's a lack of walking your talk and not putting your faith into practice, and there's some mere profession of faith and that works don't have to be uh, related to it at all. And so he addresses that in chapter 2. So that's a practical pastoral matter. And then now he's got another subject at hand that he deals with in chapter 3. And that is he's getting feedback and he's hearing, wow, there's a lot of misuse of the tongue going on in a lot of the churches and congregations and I need to address that very specifically. So that's uh, the theme that he starts out with in chapter 3. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 3 as he changes gears here. There is some intersection with what he's talked about in chapter 1, verse 26, and then again in chapter 4 that relates to chapter 3. But for the most part... 
Chapter 3 stands alone on the issue at hand that needs to be addressed in these churches spread all around. And it has to do with, okay, it's been 15 plus years now. Uh, many of these believers grew up as Jews of the Old Testament Scriptures. They heard the Gospel. They became Christians. And they've been Christians for 15 plus years. So they're not new Christians. And they had a solid Old Testament foundation. So they believed in the Scriptures for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. So many of them, no doubt, were seasoned believers or felt like they were seasoned and mature Christians. And so many of them were getting at a place where they didn't think they needed to be taught so much as they needed to teach others. And they had a lot to share, and so they were going to share what they thought the Bible said with others. And uh, too many people were doing that. There were too many know-it-alls, really, is what James discerned. Everybody thinks they're a teacher and a preacher, and that's just uh, not right. And so he's going to rein this in. So let's go ahead and look at James 3, the specific problem. Actually, James chapter 3, verse 1, all the way up to verse 12. The theme is the tongue, how we use our mouth and how we should tame the tongue. And weave through there, there's a specific incident he's dealing with relative to the church, church leadership and teaching. And then after that, he even gets more general in a way that applies to everybody and how they should uh, tame their tongue, use their tongue, watch their words. Uh, So the general issue he's going to deal with later in that section, but right at the very beginning, he gets right to the matter of what he wants to address. Keeping in mind that James, when he wrote this, he was a pastor, a teacher, an elder, a leader, an apostle, the uh, head of the church in Jerusalem but primarily a teacher of God's divine revelation. He was a teacher of truth. And listen to what he says. Follow with me as I read verses 1 and 2. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So that is a very specific issue he's addressing here among these Christians. Uh, The first thing I want to do, before I interpret uh, what I think it says as given in the Scripture, and I came up with three points to kind of help us wrap our thoughts around it, I want to deal with the translation first. Because we we had to do that in James chapter 2. A lot of times, uh, if the translation is not the best, because we've got five prominent English translations that we typically use in churches, and they're not always identical in the wording, and sometimes the wording actually does make a difference in terms of a nuance that it brings to your mind. And that's true in James chapter 3, 1 and 2. So uh, let me give you a what I think is a good translation of what the literal Greek text says. And maybe that will help you as you read through it and understand it. Uh, the first part there, it says, Let not many of you become teachers. Let not many of you become teachers. Uh, this is a command. It is imperative. He's addressing an, a problem. He's either addressing a problem he thinks is going to happen or he's addressing a problem that is already happening and going on. And just based on the Greek text and the prohibition and the specific wording used and the fact that it's a present tense imperative, really, here's a good literal translation. Stop becoming many teachers. In other words, it's already going on. Stop becoming. 
as uh, A.T. Robertson, a great Greek scholar, says that's the way it should be translated. And that, that's more specific, at least, and that helped me as I was thinking it through. Okay, so this is a problem that's already going on. He's not being preventative here. He's addressing a matter that's already happening. There are too many teachers out there. Uh, Sam Kim read Numbers 12, wonderful passage, so relevant to this, because uh, Miriam, who was Moses' sister, Aaron, Moses' brother, became jealous at the limelight and the spotlight and all the attention that was going to Moses, who was the teacher and prophet of God, and they became jealous and said, oh, is he the only one that speaks and teaches for God? How come others can't be teachers too? How come we can't be teachers? And they got in trouble for doing that. And that's kind of parallel to what James is saying here to the Christian churches. Man, we got too many teachers going on. So that needs to stop. So that's a good way to translate it. Stop becoming so many of you teachers in the church, my brethren. By the way, he's talking to believers, okay? He's not addressing those that uh, don't believe in Christianity or, you know, different religions of the world. He's talking within the church. Stop so many of you becoming teachers. Uh, My brethren, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. Some of you might even use King James and it says, My brethren, be not many masters. Be not many masters, which is not a good translation for us today, but 500 years ago, it was legitimate because masters, it meant schoolmaster, which was a teacher. But that was 500 years ago. So it should be uh, teachers, and that's the official word for teachers in the church. My brethren, do not become uh, many of you teachers, knowing that we shall incur the greater condemnation. James says condemnation. King James says condemnation. When the rest of your translations say actually a stricter judgment, which is a more accurate translation. Condemnation makes it sound like, uh, boy, you could be thrown into hell. If you mess up as a Sunday school teacher, well, I'm not going to volunteer for Sunday school teaching anymore. I don't want to go to hell teaching preschoolers saying the wrong thing. So condemnation, not a good word. If you want an example of the word condemnation, uh, you can look at Romans 8.1, where it says, There is therefore now, because of what Christ has done, died, resurrected, ascended on high for sinners as their substitute. And if you believe in that and get saved, you're totally forgiven of all of your sins past, present, and future. And as a result, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation, that means judgment in hell, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's an accurate translation of the Greek word for condemnation there. Judgment in hell by God. That is not the word being used here. Condemnation. It's just the simple word for judgment, which can be neutral, good, or bad judgment. It can be the judgment at a beauty uh, contest or at a... A cake contest, when a judge judges which one is the best one. Uh, So it depends on the context for the word judge there. So this is not talking about you're going to go to hell for teaching Sunday school the wrong way, but a stricter judgment that comes with it. Uh, Then he goes on, for we all stumble in many ways. Stumble is a good translation. It's a literal translation. What that's talking about is uh, sin that we all have to battle with. Uh, And then finally, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a... Most translations say a perfect man. The best translation, I think, in the context is a mature man, because that's the exact same word used in many other places in the New Testament. It speaks of maturity, complete, balanced. So, and that's just my preference, I think, of what he's talking about in the context. Uh, a complete man, a mature man in the faith, mature in the faith. So with that, let's go ahead and look at the three points I have there uh, that I want to highlight as James is addressing uh, the issue at hand. Uh, Point number one, and I titled this to teach or not to teach because that is the question that he's addressing in the first two verses. And the first point there I put, uh, number one, spiritual teachers 
Because he is talking about teachers in the church, formal teachers, formal teaching capacity. Spiritual teachers in the church need to be gifted and trained. Now, keep in mind, James is a teacher. He knows he's a teacher. He's a leading teacher in the church. He identifies himself in this. He did not become a teacher just because he wanted to and had a desire and signed up. James believes God called him to a teaching ministry in the church. Spiritual teachers need to be gifted and trained. That's just the simple principle that I wanted to talk about. Spiritual teachers need to be gifted. Uh, They need to be supernaturally gifted. They need to be gifted by God to teach in the church, to teach spiritual truth. The reason a teacher in the church needs to be spiritually gifted by God because of the issues and what we're dealing with is supernatural information. When you engage in teaching in the church, a Bible study, Sunday school, from the pulpit, you're engaging in a spiritual endeavor, not a, a natural endeavor. This isn't like teaching algebra in math class. I mean, anybody can do that. Or you're not teaching as a, a, a coach in sports. This is in the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, where God reigns supreme. And as a result, if you want to teach in that realm at any level, you need to be gifted, and I mean spiritually gifted by God, supernaturally gifted. Huge. Not only do you need to be supernaturally gifted if you want to be a teacher of God's truth and God's church, you also need to be trained. Well, why do we need to be trained? Well, you need to be trained because anybody that gets up and teaches the Bible speaks for God. I mean, what a sobering prospect that is, isn't it? That is exciting and that is scary at the same time. I get up, I open the Bible and I say, thus saith the Lord. I can say that just as authoritatively as the prophets did of old. Because this is God's living word. This is what he said. Thus saith the Lord. So if I claim to speak for God, then wow, I don't know about you, but I certainly want to represent Him accurately, don't I? I want to represent Him correctly. So I need to be trained. I speak for God, or I'm supposed to be. And I want to represent Him right. And one of the other reasons that we need to be trained in teaching the Bible, uh, teaching the Bible, again, isn't teaching like a natural subject. Several reasons why we need to be trained to handle the Bible. There's some practical ones. First of all, it was written in Hebrew and Greek. And for most of us, that isn't our native language, right? And so we want to go back to the original language because that helps us see more specifically what it is God communicated. So knowing the languages or how to have tools or getting help from others who know the languages will help us in our preparation for teaching so that we can do it accurately. But that requires training. Uh, Look at your Bible there in Peter, uh, right after James 2 Peter. Chapter 3, the whole book of Second Peter, really short, a lot of what Peter deals with is false teaching, bad teaching, messed up teaching, and a lot of that false teaching going on in the church. And Peter's warning the believers, wow, be discerning, watch out for false teaching in the church, whether it's blatant or subtle, uh, you've got to be discerning, you've got to be careful. And, uh, and he concludes his epistle, chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved... Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And listen to what Peter 
One of the head apostles said about Paul and his epistles. Because every once in a while, Peter would get one of these epistles from Paul. And Peter, he was a, a smart guy, gifted by God, called as an apostle to lead the church. And yet there were times when he read Paul's epistles and he's like scratching his head. Wow, what does Paul mean here? I need to go to a Romans class. Because he says in verse 16, talking about Paul, Paul's epistles, as also in all of Paul's epistles or letters, speaking in them of these things, supernatural things, spiritual things, in which are some things hard to understand. So the Bible is not always easy to understand. On the surface, it's in the modern day language, or it's in the language of the people. So in that respect, it's understandable. But because of the content is supernatural divine revelation from God given in divine eternal mysteries, that's why at times it is difficult to understand. These are not intuitive truths God is relating to us. Sometimes they defy human nature and we need a supernatural explanation from a gifted teacher of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit who is our teacher in order to understand. That's what Peter is saying here. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul got revelation from God that Peter wasn't privy to. So Peter says, man, Paul, he's, he's tough sometimes. Uh, sometimes things are hard to understand. Which the untaught, there it is. The untaught, the untrained. So there are people uh, in the believing churches and communities who are untaught, or maybe not called, maybe not gifted, but maybe not trained, and felt compelled to take it upon themselves to be a teacher. In whatever capacity. Maybe it was their own little Bible study. Maybe it was here and there, wherever they went, with their little uh, cliques as they went around, telling people what they thought. Well, did you hear the preacher today? Yeah, no, you didn't get it right. Here's what the Bible really means. That was going on. And really undermining the teaching of the church. So the untaught, untrained, and unstable. They, they are unstable in their character which is a prerequisite for being a teacher of the Bible. They distort. They mess it up. They don't cut it straight. They don't get it right. They confuse people. They deceive people. They lead people astray. This is in the church. In James' day, Peter's day, Paul's day. You know, it's been going on for 2,000 years. It's going on today. And it will continue to go on until Jesus returns. This is a great warning from uh, Peter. Of why... Oh, by the way, unstable... Uh, Distort as they do also the rest of Scripture. So there are people taking it upon themselves to teach that you have no business teaching. Or at least not yet. They're not called, they're not gifted, they're not trained. So let's go back to uh, James. And James' truth here that spiritual teachers in the church need to be gifted and trained. Just a couple of verses regarding this gifting because it is a supernatural endeavor. I do want you to look at a couple of verses. Uh, others you can look up on your own that I put there. Uh, but do go to 1 Corinthians 12. You know, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, the spiritual gifts war broke out in the church. That went on for a couple decades. And, then, you know, you can still find it here and there. Spiritual gifts. What spiritual gifts do you believe in? Do you believe in the spiritual gifts? Uh, that kind of thing. And so 1 Corinthians plays into that very specifically because that same dispute was going on in Paul's day. The charismatic gifts and spiritual gifts and who gets the gifts and uh, so follow along in 1 Corinthians 
12, uh, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. There it is. Now concerning spiritual gifts in the church. These are supernatural abilities, endowments that God gives to Christians. And there are different kinds of gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to know the truth about spiritual gifts. Pick up at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts. It's not an illegitimate question for somebody to ask, what is your spiritual gift? Some people get annoyed by that, but it's right here. There, there are a variety of gifts. I want to use my gifts to my potential in the honor of God and the edification of the church. So there are different kinds of gifts. But the same Holy Spirit. See, that's what unites us. We don't need to fight over the gifts. We're united in our gifts. They complement one another. They're supposed to as they're energized by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, verse 5, and there are varieties of ministries. That's the way you use your gift, literally. But it's the same Lord, the same Jesus. Notice our gifts are empowered by the Spirit. And they are also uh, overseen by Jesus. Same Lord of all. And then brings the whole Trinity into this, verse 6. And there are varieties of effects or results from those gifts being used. And it's the same God, God the Father. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, there's varieties and differences, but there is perfect harmony on a spiritual level because of the involvement of the Spirit, Jesus, and the Father, according to verse 4 through 6. Verse 7, but to each one is given, there it is, every Christian is given a spiritual gift. It's clear as day. I could go to Ephesians 4 where it says the same thing, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter 4. They all say the same thing. God gives every Christian a supernatural spiritual gift to use to edify and build up the church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, overseen by Jesus for the glory of God the Father. So if you're a Christian... That's a, a wonderful, precious gift to be thankful to God. God, thank you for... And, you know, many people have more than one spiritual gift or a combination of gifts. But it's clear. Verse 7, But to each one, each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's every person gets a spiritual gift or more for the purpose of the common good or building up the church. And then he begins to lift, list the gifts. Verse 8, The word of wisdom. The word of knowledge. Verse 9, The gift of faith. Uh, I think that was a supernatural gift of faith. Uh, verse 9, Healing. Verse 10, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Then he concludes the chapter with even more gifts. Look at 28 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Some of these other gifts that are given by God to Christians to help edify the church, God has appointed in the church or given the following gifts. Apostleship was a gift to lay the foundation of the church. Second, there were prophets given His gifts in the early church to help lay the foundation of the church and give us the New Testament. Third, God gave teachers to the church as a gift. There it is. So not every, not every Christian is supposed to be a formal teacher in the church. It's a supernatural gift. Notice what's kind of interesting in verse 28. These gifts, apostle, prophet, teacher, miracle, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, tongues, for the most part, they're all kind of rare. In other words, not the majority of people have all of those gifts. There are only 12 plus a couple apostles. There are very few prophets in the early church and haven't been throughout history. So these are rare. Tongues, I don't have that gift. It's a rare gift given to some. I also believe it's important that teachers is in that list. Not everybody is called to be a teacher or gifted to be a teacher. It is somewhat of a rare supernatural gift given by God as he sees fit for his church. Which is a good reminder for the people in James to hear that, oh, okay, we've got too many teachers here. Too many people aspiring to be teachers that have no business being teachers. So let's go back to James 
chapter 3. Spiritual teachers need to be gifted supernaturally by God, and God is the one who gives that gift. And they also need to be trained. Trained to cut it straight, because there's great accountability when you start saying, thus saith the Lord, and trying to represent what God said in Scripture, because Scripture is easy to mess up if you're not trained and misrepresent the truth. I, I just think of, uh, if you try to do a Bible study or preach a sermon and do a lesson on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, using only your NIV, you are going to botch it. You are going to mess it up. And you're going to lead people astray. And you're actually going to undermine a biblical, godly view of marriage. I guarantee it. So part of that is being trained. Knowing, okay, uh, and I'm not bagging on the NIV. I'm just saying in that one, because all the English translations, they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. Um, but just in that particular instance, you should, boy, what does the actual Greek language say here? And that will really help you. That will change how you interpret. So that's what I mean by training. Proper training so you uh, are not dependent upon somebody else, and especially if they made a boo-boo in the translation. So training, very important. Uh, here's a good training verse, First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2.15. If you are in Awana and you're in an upper grade, you probably have this memorized. This is your Awana verse. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent. Work hard. Make it a discipline. Be systematic. Labor. Toil. Those are some of the other words. Paul uses. Now, by the way, Paul is talking to a younger pastor, Timothy. He's a preacher of the Word. He teaches the Bible. And he's telling him, Timothy, you're already a pastor and a teacher, but you need to continue to be diligent. You need to study hard. King James says that. Study is the word used here. Study to show thyself approved. NASB says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed Handling accurately the word of truth. Boy, if you're going to teach the Bible, you've got to work hard. Uh, number one audience is God. You've got to please Him first and foremost. You've got to cut it straight. This is hard work. This is diligence and proper training. So that's a great verse on, boy, the spiritual leaders, when they're teaching spiritual truth, need to be trained, gifted and trained. The onus on training teachers in the church is on the leadership of the church. The pastors, the elders, they're supposed to be training. The gifting comes solely from God. And by the way, you can grow in your gift as a teacher. Hopefully I've grown from the first time I started preaching 23 years ago to uh, third and fourth graders. When it, that was really nervous, a scary prospect, teaching to 24th graders as a rookie and a novice. And that was a very huge challenge for me. And there were times I thought, well, I can't do this. This is too nerve-wracking. Those fourth graders, they're scary. I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life. Uh, and then hopefully you get better with time if you have that gift and get refined by God and feedback from God's people and you gain wisdom and experience and further training. So you can develop a gift and it matures, hopefully, as you grow older and use it and get feedback from God and His people. But you need to be gifted and trained. By the way... Uh, this is so practical and relevant for us today. I'm thinking, okay, James, he has all these... Uh, very opinionated Jewish Christians who are growing in their faith and they're just feeling like they need to take it upon themselves to teach in whatever context, whether it's uh, at church, after the sermon, in a Bible study, in Sunday school class, talking too much, whatever it is. They had a venue where they're just talking too much and they're speaking authoritatively. This was being divisive in the churches. It undermines the leadership of the church. It should not be this way. 
Not everybody who's a self-appointed teacher is in fact a teacher. Stop it. Do not do that. It is destructive. It is divisive. It hurts the body. It devalues the supernatural gift of teaching that God gives at His discretion to those who should have that gift. So those are all the implications involved. And 2,000 years later, I think about here in America, where do we have too many teachers, Bible teachers? Yeah, I think so. And this really hit me about 10, 12 years ago when I was introduced to the Internet at a previous church. I was a little behind the times. Um, And I was a pastor. And it was a sizable church. And there was this dear couple, wonderful family that I knew, worked with. And the wife, she was concerned about her hubby. She loved her hubby. He, He was a man of the word. He loved God's word. But she shared with me that, boy, uh, Pastor Cliff, boy, can you talk to my husband? Because he's, he's saying some weird things recently. And I don't know where he's getting his stuff that he believes, but I don't think it's consistent with Scripture. And so she talked to her hubby, and sure, he came to me because we were friends, and we sat down and talked, and he's sharing this stuff, this theological truth uh, with me. And I'm like, wow, I've never heard this before. It's kind of scary. I mean, I went to ma- the col- college as a Bible major, took languages. Then I went to seminary. Uh, for like seven years and studied all the languages and then been a pastor for 15 years. And then he, this guy is telling me truth I'd never heard in the Bible. I was like, oh boy, I, I missed a class or I slept through it or something. Um, so finally I just said, man, this sounds really weird. This is bizarre. I mean, where did you get this? Did you get this at our church? And he said, no. Where'd you get it? Oh, I got it on a website. Really? What's the name of the website? I can't even remember. The, it was a weird name for the website. Well, what's a website? So then he showed me, or a blog, whatever that is. And so he, he actually took me there. And I'm looking at this thing, and the first thing I'm looking for is the guy's name. Never heard of this guy in my life. Next thing I'm looking for, this guy's statement of faith. Can't find it anywhere. He doesn't have one. Red flag. Uh, uh, uh. His affiliation with any church. Nothing. Can't find it. People that endorse him, that are well-known, incredible Bible teachers. Zero. Can't find it. So it turns out, did a whole bunch of research, read through all this. Turns out the guy is a self-appointed Bible expert and Bible teacher, and he has his own website. And he's appointed himself as God's gift to humanity as a Bible teacher. And there was a lot of heretic, point-blank heretical stuff on that site. And I said, how did you come upon this site? Oh, no, I was just going through surfing the web. This looked interesting. I was like, whoa, that's a... And I learned that's a dangerous prospect, surfing the web. Because there is so much stuff out there. And here it is ten years later. How discerning we need to be. I mean, you could spend forever on the website looking up theological... Uh, websites, blogs, everybody and their uncle and their monkey's uncle has an opinion about the Bible and truth and preachers. That's that's another thing, is uh, all these untrained people out there who are Christians who rank Bible teachers all over the world and are always correcting them. And uh, Dever, he's a seven, and Piper, he's a five, and a whatever, and a McManus, he's a two, and on and on it goes. Um, hey, at least I made the list. But... Um, so for us, how much more of a caution? Because it, the proliferation of it is just uh, unimaginable. It doesn't have any ends today. And then, and then there, there's just a, on and on people who have actually self-appointed to ministry. You know, you can just, whatever your name is, cliffmcmanusministries.org, cliffmcmanusministries, Inc., or whatever. You've got all these so-called ministries that aren't ordained by God. They're not uh, validated by any church whatsoever. They're not consistent. They have no grounding in Scripture uh, so this is a good warning for us, man. Today, stop being so many teachers. Boy, does the church in America or the world need to hear that today? That would be really helpful, wouldn't it? So uh, that's James' point. Spiritual teachers need to be gifted by God, 
trained by competent people in the church to cut the Word of God accurately. Let's go on to point number two uh, from James. Not only do spiritual teachers need to be gifted and trained, number two, spiritual uh, teachers will be held accountable by God. Held accountable. Flipping back to James. Like I said, uh, King James said uh, there's going to be condemnation. Not a good translation, but the the rest of them get it right. Uh, ESV, New American Standard, New King James, NIV. The teachers in the church need to be careful. We need to have fewer of them, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So there's going to be a higher level of accountability for Bible teachers uh, from God's point of view with regard to spiritual realities and spiritual truths, right? Which just makes sense because you spend all this time supposedly studying the Bible and knowing and digging in the details and knowing what God says and what God requires. Then first and foremost, hopefully you realize you've got to apply that to your life or try in God's power to apply it to your life so that you can be a model and example to others so that when you do teach what God requires, you are not a two-faced hypocrite as you say, thus saith the Lord, you must do this. And then in your private life or even public life, you're living a different way. That is hypocritical. That is two-faced. That is illegitimate. And that's what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for doing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and following, where he said, don't be like the Pharisees. They say this about God's Word, but they live a life that totally contradicts God's Word, and yet they claim to be authorities on teaching the Word of God. That's what they did. And that goes on all the time. And we have to be careful of that. And every single one of us is vulnerable and susceptible to that very thing because we all battle sin, and we're going to see that in just a second. But the reality is, if you teach the Bible, there's going to be a higher standard of judgment before God's throne in heaven. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Spiritual teachers will be held accountable by God. Well, why why are they going to be held accountable in a different way? Well, like I already said, because they claim to speak for God. Thus saith the Lord. So, boy, if you invoke God's name, accountability and responsibility comes with it, doesn't it? Because God's name is holy. God's name is precious. God's name speaks of His very character and His person. Don't misrepresent God. There is great, high accountability why else, why else also is there great accountability for those who teach truth or the Bible? Because teachers influence and affect people's lives, don't they? Wow. People literally, if they sit under certain teaching, they hear the truths, they take it in either consciously or unconsciously, and if you're thinking on it, meditate on it, and if you buy into it, it is going to affect the way you live, it's going to affect the way you think, the way you conduct your life, your words, everything, your entire trajectory of your life could be conditioned and set by the spiritual teaching you had. That is exciting and that is extremely frightening at the same time, isn't it? Wow. So that's why there's a high level of accountability because we affect people's lives. And we don't just affect people's lives because firemen affect people's lives and teaching and other subjects affect people's lives. We affect people's lives spiritually and even eternally. Eternal souls are at stake. So there is no higher level of what is at risk here. The very souls of people made in the image of God. And as a result, we are highly accountable to God for how we speak His truth to those people. So, point blank. We who teach... And James, I like this. James puts himself in there. 
Not many of you should be teaching. He's not saying nobody should be teaching. He's not saying that. He's saying uh, people who have no business teaching should not be teaching. The teachers need to keep teaching. The teachers need to get trained. And at the same time, even if you are a called teacher by God, there's going to be great accountability. And as you go into your teaching uh, ministry, go in it knowingly that you are accountable to God, responsible to God. There is also great reward that comes with being a faithful teacher of God. Great reward, great blessing. And there's going to be greater strictness and standard by which they are held. First Timothy, I do want to read this one. This is great. First uh, Timothy 4, 16. Again, Paul writing to Timothy, who's a Bible teacher, a younger minister of the Lord than Paul, a son in the faith to Paul. Timothy was a leader in the church. He was still growing, he was still maturing, but he had authority. He had some troublemakers in his congregations from he went place to place. Some were people that were teaching that had no business teaching, and Timothy was sent there to silence them, said Paul. Can you go to this congregation and, tell, and just tell them to close their mouth? Just sit in the pew and clo- literally close their mouth based on what they're saying. They're spewing, and it's disruptive. But here in 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy wasn't a, he was called, he was gifted to teach, but still, he's warned by Paul. Paul, uh, Paul says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself. Watch your life. Be godly. Don't be a hypocrite, Timothy, to the people. Be a godly man. Guard your life. Protect your life. Watch out for sin. Watch out for stumbling blocks. So it starts with your personal life first. Pay close attention to yourself, your personal life, and then to your teaching or to your doctrine. And that's key for anybody that teaches in the church, especially a pastor or an elder. Guard your personal life first. And also, carefully guard your doctrine. They go together. They are inseparable. That's why the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3, it says, yes, you need to be apt to teach. You need to have an aptitude for teaching. You need to know how to teach God's Word. But most of the qualifications are on the character of the man. Right? You need to have a, a lifestyle that has a pattern of godliness. You're walking in holiness in the right direction. And Paul tells Timothy that. Man, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. If you do that, by the way, and persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. See what a great blessing a faithful teacher of God's Word can be. All the way from a preschool, Sunday school teacher, all the way up the ranks to a pastor, elder, preacher comes with great blessing and reward, but there's great high accountability. Well, what kind of accountability is this? Some people read condemnation in James, like I said, and think uh, hell. No, I think it's the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, believers being judged by Christ himself for everything they did on life as Christians in the ministry, not just teaching, but teaching is going to have a higher level of scrutiny and accountability attached with it. And the kind of judgment is the judgment throne of Christ. So look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, because that applies to all of us, not just those who are teachers. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul mentions this in Romans. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians. And he also mentions it in 2 Corinthians 5. Where when you're a Christian, at some point after you die, I don't know about the timing. Maybe it's right away. Maybe it's at the end of the age. But at some point after a Christian dies, goes to heaven, there's going to be a time of reckoning before Jesus Christ, your Savior. As a, as a believer who dies. You will not go to hell. 
You will not be condemned for any of your sins, by the way, because your sins already got condemned when Jesus died in your place 2,000 years ago. Man, isn't that good news? Amen. As a Christian, when you are judged by Christ in heaven in the future, you will not be judged for your sins. That's why Jesus died. But there will be a judgment. Uh, or an awards ceremony, if you will. For what you did as a Christian in your life. And so Paul addresses that specifically. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Listen to this. For we all, every single Christian, we all must appear before the judgment seat, the bema, the bema, it's called in the Greek, the bema judgment. Maybe you've heard of that. So this is a very specific kind of judgment seat or throne. And it was in the culture of Paul's day. Many times the bema was likely an, an awards platform where you received a crown or some kind of gift for service well done. So it's almost like an awards ceremony. For we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, in order that each one of us, every Christian, individually, one by one, you're going to be judged individually based on your own merits, what you did for Christ, what you didn't do for Christ. That each one may be recompensed, paid back. And again, that's not payback pay of judgment of the fires of hell or having your sins flashed to the whole universe and the angels on a large screen television. Paid back with rewards, I believe, for your deeds that you did in this life, in the body, according to what you have done. Here's key. Whether good, and then my translation says bad. But actually the word used, some translations say uh, evil. Evil is not the word. That is a horrible translation. It's whether good or bad whether legitimate or illegitimate. There are things I do as a Christian that aren't legitimate. There are things I do as a Christian that I think are great for God. Won't God be pleased? Oh, wasn't that spiritual? And then in the end, Jesus will say, you know, McManus, that was a total waste of time. Accomplished nada. Zippo. That's what he's talking about. But this was really good. Did this in the power of the Spirit. I used it. Blessed people. Lives were changed. You'll be blessed as a result of that. This, no. That was worthless. And that's, that's a good translation, actually. Whether good or worthless. And then one more parallel passage because it's so practical for all of us. First uh, Corinthians 3, where I think Paul's talking about the same thing. First Corinthians 3, the judgment seat of Christ after we die as a Christian. Stand before Jesus. He looks at your life. He evaluates it. All that time you spent watching dumb Hollywood movies, that was a waste of time. Okay, what else you got there? Um, service you did as a Christian. First Corinthians 3, starting at verse 13. Each man, each Christian. Man, woman, and child that knows Jesus. Each man's work, work you did on earth as a Christian, whether good or bad, it will become evident. God is going to make it manifest. It's going to be seen. What is it? Well, for the day we'll show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Wow, look at that. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So in other words, God is going to take, apparently have one of his angels there with a supernatural heavenly blowtorch or whatever it is and take all your works and just go over with the blowtorch. And anything that burns up, gone, nada, worthless, zero. Anything that remains is precious gold, metal, silver in the kingdom of God for His glory. And we will be rewarded for that. That's what he's talking about. Because it will be revealed with, revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work uh, which he has built upon it remains, get this, he shall receive a reward. 
Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up at the judgment, he shall suffer loss. No reward, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. The judgment seat of Christ. And so spiritual teachers have to go through this as every Christian does, the throne of Christ to be judged. And there's a special category by which I believe God and Christ will judge those who professed to be Bible teachers, and that is with the standard of Scripture and what they taught. Uh, and so there's going to be a higher standard of judgment for them, a scary and frightening prospect and also a great motivating factor to keep uh, a legitimate Bible teacher holy on their knees, studying, diligent, accountable, persevering, growing, teaching the Word of God with joy, but also with fear and trembling before Almighty God, the judge we have to face. And boy, when somebody's motivated like that, you, you probably get better Sunday school lessons, don't you? Or a better sermon. So spiritual teachers will be held accountable by God. And then finally, number three, spiritual teachers are especially vulnerable. Anybody that teaches the Bible, anybody that teaches is especially vulnerable or susceptible. Well, vulnerable and susceptible to what? Well, to messing up with their words. What does a teacher do? A teacher talks. Blah, blah, blah. That's what I do. McManus, what do you do for a living? Blah, blah, blah. Words, words, words. And you talk fast too, McManus. You say words twice as fast as everybody else. That's a lot of words. Well, that's, that's frightening in light of Proverbs 10.19. Spiritual teachers are especially vulnerable with stumbling in their words, sinning with their words, sinning with their mouth. That's James' point there. In James chapter 3, as he keeps going on, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment for we all. Every Christian stumbles in many ways. By the way, the word ways is not in the original language. So for we all stumble in many. I think what James is specifically talking about, every Christian messes up with their words and with their mouth. Because he's talking about teaching. What do teachers do? They talk. And boy, if you're a teacher, you do a lot of talking. In Proverbs, I put it down for you, 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. So if, you're a, if you are a verbose person who likes to talk, you are setting yourself up for sin with your mouth. That's why in James 1.26 and 27, he reminded us, don't be flippant. Be slow to speak relative to the Word of God. Because it's easy to mess up with your mouth. It is easy to mess up with your words. I am very calculated when I get up to teach the Bible. Study, study, study. Uh, go to the text. See what it says. Translate it. Discern it. Exposit. Exegete. Put it in an outline. Go through all my points. Pray it through. Give it time. All the way up until the very last minute. We have to rehearse it last night. Rehearsing it this morning. God, don't let me misspeak as I teach your word. Because it is so easy to... Did you know that sometimes I get up here and say something spontaneous I did not plan on saying? That's when I get in trouble. Usually it's a great illustration that the Spirit of God gave me at the moment when I didn't think of it, or it was something that I shouldn't have said. It's easy to do. Where there are many words, transgression is not lacking. Or just foibles and fumbles. People come up occasionally, did you know you said... This word, or you said that phrase, or you said this wrong reference, I said, no, I had no idea. Well, you did. And I was like, wow, thank you for telling me. So it's just so easy. You just unconsciously can say the wrong thing. 
Did you know that the Apostle Paul was trained personally by Galileo? Some of you are laughing. Some of you are laughing. No, it can't be because it wasn't Galileo in like the 1500s. Uh, that was just a sermon that I had heard where the preacher said that. And what he meant was Paul was trained by Gamaliel. <laughs> and said Galileo. And he had just no idea what he said. And I didn't have the heart to tell him either later. Some friend I am. And here he's out selling his sermons all over the place. Um, so that's what I mean when I say spiritual teachers are especially vulnerable to messing up with their words when they're teaching. So we've got to be cautious. We've got to be careful because when words are many, transgression is not lacking. And James is going to go on to tell you even another reason why, or actually he does at the end of verse 2. Uh, why, do we stump, why do we mess up so easily with our mouth and our words? Well, because we all stumble. Notice all of us mess up with our words so easily. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a mature man, complete man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And then he goes on for the rest of that section to say that, you know, of all of your human components and human organs and anything that's human about you, the hardest thing to restrain and control is your mouth. Isn't that true? I know it is for me. To control our tongues. Man, why did I say that? I mean, I even rehearsed it, premeditated, and I still didn't get it right. And James acknowledges that. That is the hardest thing to restrain for any human in the flesh. Walking with feet of clay and indwelling sin is restraining our mouth. Self-control of the mouth. And James acknowledges that. And so if you're a teacher, wow, you're at greater risk, greater vulnerability. And what compounds the sober nature of that is Jesus told us we're going to be held accountable for every word that comes out of our mouth. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, he said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every idle word they speak. For by your words will you be justified, and by your words will you be condemned. Jesus said that. Wow. God help us, especially our Bible teachers, in any context. We all stumble. By the way, the general truth is that, just a good reminder for every Christian, we all stumble in many ways. That should, if you meditate on that and think that about yourself, I stumble. I sin in many ways. That should humble all of us before God, right? If I believe that about myself, even though I'm saved by grace, totally forgiven in the blood of Jesus, the reality is as long as I am alive and have breath until Jesus comes or until I die, I will continue to sin or stumble in many ways. And I need God's grace. I need Jesus' forgiveness. And I need to be a humble person as I look at other sinners that I rub shoulders with. Don't I? We need to be gracious. We need to be forgiving. It's just basic Christianity. Spiritual teachers are especially vulnerable. By the way, when you think about it, with all these teachers or self-proclaimed teachers in whatever context, why do people do that? Why do people aspire to be a teacher of the Bible and God's truth? I've seen this over the course of 20 years, serving in six different churches at different levels. It is not uncommon for a new person to come to your church or they want to join your church and, the, and they immediately volunteer to be a Sunday school teacher or even preach the next sermon for you. And you don't even know this person. It's like, whoa, red flag, time out, yo. I don't think they have the proper perspective of what is involved here of representing God by teaching His Word. That is not uncommon. But why do people aspire to the role of teaching in the church for the wrong reason? Um, several reasons. Some people just like the limelight. They like the attention. 
They're all about ego. They're like uh, Diotrephes in, in the little epistle of John. It said he liked the preeminence. He was a teacher in the church, an illegitimate one, because his pride got to his head. And he liked the preeminence. He liked the attention. He liked the uh, accolades. He liked the fact that he could influence people. Some people be, want to become teachers because they're know-it-alls. Some people become teachers because they just want to be heard. They have a lot to say. They want their voice and opinion given. They're very opinionated. Some people, according to Paul in 1 Timothy, or Philippians chapter 1, preach and teach out of rivalry. Do you know what that means? Some people become self-appointed teachers of biblical truth because they have a critical spirit and they have to set the record straight because nobody else can get it right. I see it all the time on the internet. Blogs and this and that. Self-appointed teachers of rivalry and wrong motivation. Some people teach and aspire to this role in office to make money and get rich. We see that all the time, especially in America, abusing uh, the teaching ministry. But just on a personal level, I think that teaching the Bible, being a preacher in God's church with God's people, has to be a supernatural gift as I just think about my own life. Because up until I was age 19, I was afraid to ever stand up in public and say anything to anybody. I was scared to death. So I think that's why the first C I ever got in school was in fifth grade with the music teacher. It was a C minus. I was a straight A student and got a C minus in music. Why? Because I never opened my mouth. Because I was too scared for anybody to see me saying anything or singing. I was such a self-conscious, scared, frightened person. Then I got saved and boom! It's like God changed me and gave me a desire to teach even though I still am not real comfortable, believe it or not, standing up in front of people. Uh, it's, it's strange. It defies human reason, but it's a supernatural gift. Well, in light of these great th- three great truths that James gives us, that spiritual teachers need to be gifted and trained, they're held accountable by God with a higher standard, and also they're especially vulnerable because they're proneness to sin with their mouths as humans. What should we do as a congregation and as a body? And so here's just some practical thoughts for all of us. Uh, encourage all of us. Most of these have to do with pray. Pray for your elders. Pray for your elders at GBF. Did you know if you're a member at GBF, you have a membership covenant. It's got four points. One of them says you will continue. You promise to continue to pray for your elders. Have you been praying for your elders? Members of GBF. I don't know. We need your prayers. Who else should we pray for? Uh, next one. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. They need your help. They need the supernatural enablement from God, His Spirit, uh, the trials that come through life as they're trying to prepare a lesson. Pray for your Sunday school teachers at GBF. Thank God for your Sunday school teachers at GBF. I know I do. Thank God for them. Pray for Scott, Jen, Nikki, Connor, Paige, Bob, Matt, Ed, Robert, James, Jane, Alex, Art, Brad, Brian, Jay, Herb, B, Eric, and I probably forgot some. Those are our faithful Sunday school teachers. Pray for our Bible study teachers. Peter and Brian and everybody else that does our Bible studies. Thank God for their ministry. Another prayer request. Ask God to raise up more godly, qualified teachers in our church. We need more teachers. Did you know that? We do. We need more Sunday school teachers for children. We need more Bible study teachers to lead. And also, God's going to raise up more Bible studies. That needs to be an act of God. Pray for Him. Uh, all of us, the next thing we need to do is confess sin. We need to confess our sin to God because every single one of us sins with our mouth, don't we? And we need to have God search us. God, search me, convict me where I have undermined other teachers in the church with my mouth, with my words. Gossiping about them behind their back, undermining them, whatever it is. 
We all need to search our hearts and ask God for forgiveness. You do. God will forgive you of your sin. And then finally, for all of us, a preventative measure, pray to God and ask God to continually guard our mouth. Guard our mouth. And that when we do mess up, the Spirit will convict us instantly. We'll be sensitive to that. We will respond to it. We will first repent to the Holy Spirit of God. And then if necessary, talk to the person that we offended with our mouth. And I'm starting at home uh, in the family because that's where we mess up. or I know I mess up the most on a frequent basis. So there's a lot of things that we can do practically. And it's all in dependence upon God and His leading, isn't it? And His grace and mercy. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank God for our, our day and our time of fellowship together. Father, we do thank You for our time of fellowship together, time to worship You, uh, God, to study the Scriptures together. We know and we are reminded that the Holy Spirit is our teacher because we are imperfect. So Holy Spirit, thank You for being our teacher. Thank You for the ministry of illumination, enlightening our finite minds to amazing, glorious blessed, supernatural, divine truth that comes from You, from Your Scripture. And God, thank You for these reminders from James, living and active about the gift of teaching, the blessing it is, and also the great accountability that comes with it. God, thank You for the reminder that we are uh, sinful and totally dependent upon You at all times. God, forgive us for being sinful with our mouth. And God, through Your Spirit... uh, Lead us, convict us more and more so that we can be good stewards of our words. That our mouth would be a a tool of refreshing and edifying others and not cutting down, being cynical, sarcastic, biting, whatever it is. It's so easy um, from our sinful nature. God, we want you to be glorified in every area of our life, including our words and our mouth. We pray that you'll help us. We know that you will. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.